engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. With me, Chris Smith. And me, Adam Murphy. This week, we look at the potential for a third wave of COVID, how the vaccine fares in pregnant people and some muons behaving badly. Plus, how is it that you're listening to this show right now? We're delving into the science of radio, from how one gets made right through to listening out for alien broadcasts. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. In the UK, COVID-19 cases are now thankfully very low and falling further, and that's helping to unlock the next steps in our lockdown-easing roadmap. Many of the adult population celebrated the return of former freedoms at newly reopened pubs, raising a glass in the process to the fact that 32 million people, more than half the population, have so far received a dose of vaccine. That's one of the highest vaccination rates in the world. It was a bit surprising then to hear the Prime Minister seeming to talk down the impact the vaccine's having on coronavirus infections recently. It is very, very important for everybody to understand that the reduction in these numbers, in hospitalizations and in deaths and in infections, has not been achieved by the vaccination programme. People don't, I think, appreciate that it's the lockdown that has been overwhelmingly important in delivering this improvement. Meanwhile, cases continue to surge across Europe and in South America and India in what many are calling the third wave. Since early in the pandemic, King's College London's Tim Spector has been following the course of the outbreak and monitoring its trajectory with the COVID Zoe app he helped to develop, which has generated large amounts of data and insights into the activity of the new coronavirus around the country. So does he agree with Boris Johnson about the vaccine's effectiveness? And does he think we're in for a third wave as we open up? No. Not this summer and probably not this year. I think we might have a ripple at the end of the year as the immunity wanes and we get cold weather again. But I'm not seeing what we would now consider a third wave in my estimation. Why are you at odds with, with what a lot of people, a lot of eminent people have been saying is the likely outcome from our present situation and also with an eye on what's going on in Europe? Of course, they're experiencing what they're dubbing the third wave. Well, the third wave, as have been relying on modelling, is always based on a number of assumptions. The data we're seeing from the Zoe app is much more reassuring than a lot of those assumptions in terms of the efficacy of the vaccine in certainly preventing cases is much higher than was predicted in a lot of those models. And so that's the reason I think we have got our case levels so low. This week, they're down below 2,000 cases a day where we were back in July last year. It's that detail about the vaccine that we're seeing, even after one shot, we're getting 50% less cases. And after two shots, we're getting 15 times less cases. That's the thing that heartens me, that we are progressively moving towards herd immunity. That's why I don't think variants, whether they come from abroad or inside, are going to be able to take hold this year. 
Last week, University College London put out a paper suggesting we were about to cross that magic threshold that had been proposed as a target to achieve some semblance of herd immunity. In other words, the number of people as a proportion of the population that are immune. Do we actually know, though, what fraction of the population need to be immune to stop this thing spreading? Estimates seem to be somewhere between 50 and 75%. So the fact we're at 60% vaccinations and there's probably another 10% of people who have got uh, antibodies suggests that we're pretty close to that. I wonder why the Prime Minister earlier this week then was at pains to say this is the effect of the lockdown, don't read too much into the vaccines yet. Is that just really to stop people going off on a bender because the pubs are open again? His comment doesn't really make sense to me, looking at the data, because when lockdown came, we'd already seen the peak in in most of the country. I believe that the lockdowns have helped. Social distancing and reducing mobility absolutely helps. But there's no doubt that the vaccine has been really much more effective than people thought it would be in real life. And we've got a paper coming out in a week or so to show that. It's broken the cycle of infections in hospitals and in care homes that plagued us last year. I think it's made a a real difference uh, this time. And so outbreaks really can't gain hold because there just aren't enough susceptible people. What about the issue of variants, though? Because we saw the dramatic impact that the appearance of the Kent variant when it first popped up on our radar screens back in September and then eclipsed everything in the country by Christmas. What about the possibility of a new variant coming in either from one of the other countries being ravaged by coronavirus at the moment or just popping up spontaneously within the circulating viruses we already have in the country? Well, I think we definitely will see new variants. I think everyone's agreed on that. The question is, is that variant going to be dominant enough over the other strains to take over? And if it it has fought off the other strains, does it have the ability to fight off previous immunity or uh, the vaccines? Really, there's no hard data to say that any of these strains do anything more than slightly reduce the efficacy of the current vaccine. So given there's so many ifs, there's no reason that we should stop our, our plans to come out of lockdown because I, th- I think they're getting increasingly remote. Is that true, though? Because if one looks at Brazil as one example, people are suggesting that if you if you look at, say, the P1 variant that popped up in Manaus, in that part of the country last year, the number of people hit by coronavirus initially was at least 70-80% of the population that same area is being hit again by this new variant, which appears to to be bypassing the immunity those people naturally had having been infected previously. So does this not argue that actually if a new variant, including the the Brazil variant, pops up here, we are potentially in trouble and back to square one? If that is entirely true, then I I think there would be cause for concern. But I, I think whether that is the actual case and whether the data in Brazil about what happened previously is really good enough, I'm not so sure. The likelihood that a new strain would come in and take over a a complete, currently immune or previously exposed population to such an extent that it caused a major third wave, I just see as uh, still very unlikely. 
Is it not a serious concern, though, that if we do send our population off on hot holidays to countries where there's a partially vaccinated population, this is the ideal breeding ground for the kinds of mutants that could infect vaccinated people? So therefore, the only coronavirus people are going to come back with is one that can bypass immunity from the vaccinations and then will spawn new outbreaks here. I think that's a possibility, but it's a question of weighing up the bigger picture, you know, the economic picture and the, you know, psychological picture of whether we want to lock down as an island for several years like New Zealand. That's the alternative. One of the key questions here is, do fully vaccinated people really transmit the virus in enough numbers to be a worry and bring it back. And I think that's the killer question. And depending on that, then vaccinated people are more or less free to travel as they want. Still some questions to answer then, but looks like the news is good. Thanks very much to Tim Spector. And with another encouraging step forward, the UK's Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, the JCVI, has now advised that pregnant women should be offered the COVID-19 vaccine at the same time as the rest of the population, based on their age and clinical risk group. This is a change from the previous guidance that pregnant women should only be vaccinated if their risk from COVID-19 was judged to be high. This initial stance was adopted not because there is evidence of danger, but because it is standard practice not to test new drugs and vaccines on pregnant women. So there was initially no data on which to base the claim that the vaccine's safe or that it's effective during pregnancy. But now real-world data from the US is giving reassuring results. And Phil Sanson heard about one such study from Harvard's Andrea Edlow, who's been measuring antibody levels in over 130 vaccinated pregnant women. The levels of those antibodies were equally high in pregnant and lactating women, as they were in women of reproductive age who were not pregnant. I mean, fantastic. Sounds like good news. It was great news uh, for pregnant and lactating women everywhere. Was that not what you were expecting? It's a reasonable question to investigate because we know that pregnancy is a situation where women are relatively immune tolerant. And that's partly in order to tolerate the developing fetus, which is half not the woman herself. Okay, so with this 130 participants, can you be reasonably sure of saying, yes, these mRNA vaccines work just as well for these people? Yes, I think we can be reasonably sure at looking at what's called the efficacy of the vaccine or how well the vaccine functions to give people antibodies. What about for the baby? What are the implications? We looked at the women in our study who delivered during the study period, and that was only 10 of the pregnant women. And we found that antibodies were present in the umbilical cord blood of all 10 babies and in the mother's breast milk. So does that mean the babies were actually coronavirus resistant? That is something that our study couldn't specifically look at because we didn't, of course, go on to try to expose the babies to coronavirus and see if they were resistant to it. But yes, you know, we assume that the presence of antibodies in the umbilical cord will give babies some degree of protection, but how much is needed to give more complete protection and how long that protection will last in babies is something that isn't yet known and our study couldn't answer, unfortunately. There's obviously a million concerns going around about the vaccine. And one other one that I've actually heard from some people is they say, oh, is it a risk, you know, if I'm trying to get pregnant? That's a very good question. And that's a common question that we get a lot as obstetricians. 
there was some sort of what, for lack of a better word, I could just honestly call junk science that was kind of uh, perpetuated early on in the evolution of the vaccines where people were saying that the mRNA sequence in the vaccines, so sort of the code that the vaccines have that tells your immune system to make these proteins, had some similarity to the code that might be in the placenta. That has been disproven. There actually is extremely little overlap in the mRNA sequence or code that's in the virus with any mRNA that's in the placenta. So that basically was just completely false. Now that you've done this study, would you feel confident saying this vaccine is safe for pregnant people or, or safe for people who have just given birth or, or what? Our study did not specifically look at safety. Our study was designed to look at efficacy, which is how well does it work to give you antibodies. There are studies that look at safety that are ongoing. Pfizer's doing a trial with over 4,000 pregnant women but you really need a very large segment of the population to see a safety signal. So our study doesn't look at safety and the data that do look at safety are sort of still evolving. Right. So if I were pregnant and I were getting offered an mRNA vaccine, what would you tell me? I would tell you that you, together with your trusted care provider, whether that's your obstetrician, a midwife, should look at your risk of getting COVID, your own medical conditions, and then to think about the known risks of having COVID-19 in pregnancy, which we know that women who do get COVID-19 in pregnancy are more likely to need a ventilator, more likely to need a heart-lung bypass machine, and unfortunately more likely to die than women who are the same age who are not pregnant. So weighing all those risks, your own kind of personal risks, as well as just the general risk of pregnancy against the small risk of the unknown where, you know, pregnant and lactating women were excluded from the original vaccine trials. So unfortunately, we don't have the human safety data in pregnancy that we have in animals. But the animal safety data that the mRNA vaccines have doesn't show concerns. And I think this just highlights why women never should have been left out of these trials in the first place. So some good news and hopefully also some reassurance there in equal measure. Thanks very much to Andrea Edlow. Her study documenting those results is just out in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynaecology. Since the pandemic began, we've wondered, do our genes make a difference to who gets COVID? Nathan Pearson is part of the enormous team that have just found out. So when we scan across, we see this really tremendous spike in kind of a very intriguing but also mysterious spot. That's in the long interview on this month's Naked Genetics. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, how we might talk to aliens, and I try and build a radio from scratch. But first, to conservation. Trying to keep animals safe has a lot of pitfalls. Often, you might want to move a population of one animal from one place to another because they were at risk where they were and you just want them to be safe. But... A new study from the University of Cambridge looking at freshwater mussels has shown that it can be very easy to transport parasites and other pathogens along with the animals you're trying to protect. Josh Bryan joins us now to look at this in a little bit more detail. So Josh, what kind of parasites do these freshwater mussels get? 
Well, they get a whole range of things. And what we've found is that often we don't understand the full range uh, that these muscles get. But some of the main ones are castrating worms. So these worms live inside the gonad of the muscle, uh, castrate the muscle, and then use them basically as a factory to produce their own reproductive stages for the rest of the muscle's life. They also have mites, which can eat the gills. And what we're seeing now, especially from the US, is that there's a lot of emerging evidence of viruses and bacteria, uh, which can spread through these muscles very, very quickly. And why is protecting them so important? Well, these freshwater mussels are hugely important in terms of the ecosystem. So they're what known as ecosystem engineers. So they modify the sediment, they help with nutrient cycling. Uh, they're also massive filter feeders. So my favourite stat about freshwater mussels is that the entire volume of the River Cam that flows through Cambridge is filtered through freshwater mussels every two weeks. So they do a massive job of cleaning the water. In addition, because they form these massive mussel beds along the banks, they can help prevent erosion and things like that as well. But on the whole, freshwater mussels are actually one of the most threatened animal groups in the whole world. So it's really important that we understand uh, all the threats facing them and take appropriate steps to protect them. Say an infected mussel got into an uninfected group. How much damage could that do? Well, it could do a whole lot of damage, especially if it's something which can spread straight from muscle to muscle. You know, if the mussels in the recipient population maybe don't have the same immune response that the previous muscle that that was introduced to it does, this could spread very quickly from muscle to muscle, do a whole lot of damage. However, sometimes it'll also depend on the life history strategy of the parasite. You know, some parasites need multiple hosts in their life cycle, and so if those hosts are present or not, that'll determine how much damage these parasites can do. So we really need to understand not only our muscle populations, but also really need to look more at parasites and their life histories. And so I get why this is important for mussels and how important mussels are, but is this work applicable beyond them to other animals? Absolutely. So the principles that we talk about in our paper, we think they're relatable to any sort of translocation um, that we see. What we really want to emphasise in our paper is that, you know, an individual organism isn't actually just one individual. It's a whole community. It's a community of all the bacteria, viruses, worms, ticks, mites, uh, etc. that live on it and in it. And so if we uh, want to translate organisms appropriately, we really need to appreciate that they do comprise these whole communities, and this will be true for any single animal uh, that's moved. So it's not just mussels that this could be a threat to. Uh, any animal could carry parasites or diseases uh, if we move it around and introduce it to new organisms. Brilliant. Very important work there. Josh Bryan, thank you very much. And that work has just been published in Conservation Letters. Just goes to show what an amazing but intricate and tangled web the world ecosystem is, doesn't it? Well, to something completely different, and that's particle physics now. And scientists have recently announced two independent discoveries that suggest that we have got a big gap in our understanding of the entities and the forces that govern how the universe operates. Both discoveries hinge on particles called muons. Nothing to do with cats. These are short-lived electrons that are like an electron, but about 200 times heavier. And scientists in the US got very excited when they sent streams of muons circling around a ring guided by magnetic fields and found that the muons wobbled in a way that no one had predicted they would. And in a different series of experiments, this time at the CERN Large Hadron Collider, muons were turning up in their experiments less often than theory tells us they should. Both lines of evidence point there to being something missing in our understanding of how this branch of physics works. If it turns out to be true, it's potentially a massive step forward. To put it into context for us, here's Cambridge University theoretical physicist Ben Allenach, who speculates that there might be a new, undiscovered force involved. 
in America, they were particularly looking at muons because you can make a very precise measurement of the wobble of their spins as they go around a storage ring. And you can also predict very precisely with using the theory what that wobble should be. So by comparing the two numbers, um, you can see whether you've got the theory correct. Uh, and the, of course, the American experiment is saying that perhaps we haven't got the theory correct. So they know what they expect if our understanding of what the universe is made of and the rules it follows is correct, then these muons should behave in a certain way when they spin them in a ring, but they don't. Absolutely. And they're affected by quantum fluctuations in uh, of other particles and forces. If there are additional uh, particles and forces that you don't know about, they will affect the spin in a way that you're not taking into account in the theory. And so the two numbers won't match. How out were the measurements in the States compared with what you would expect if the theory were correct? Statistically, they're out by what's called uh, 4.2 sigma. That means it's not a fluke, basically. These are very accurate measurements to parts per million. So, um, you know, that's something like, I don't know, uh, measuring the length of your car to the width of a human hair or something. It's incredibly accurate. So in this very fine-tuned world, it's quite a big difference. And contrasting that with what they've been doing at CERN, they've been making measurements also on muons, but coming at this from a slightly different angle. But they've also got some interesting findings this week. How do they align with, or in, in, in the same way, not align with, theories as as to what we should be seeing with the behaviour of muons? So in CERN, they've been producing other kinds of particles and watching them decay into muons um, and electrons. And they should decay with the same rate into muons as electrons. But it seems like they're only going 85% of the time into the muons. So again, there's a problem when you have muons involved. In other words, it looks like there is a gap in the jigsaw puzzle that is how we model what the universe is made of and the rules it follows. And it seems to hinge on the behaviour of muons. Have we got any insights from these experiments as to what is the missing element? Currently, it's really up to people like me, the theorists, to come up with lots of ideas and then see if they make any sense. And there are a lot of ideas, um, I have to say. One of them says that the American experiment is due to a new supersymmetric particle, which is also the dark matter in the universe. So people are connecting this to other problems in physics. Um, I personally am working on a new force and the LHC results would be due to sticking it together more when it wants to go to muons uh, and changing the result. Um, And this can also have appeared in the quantum fluctuation in the American experiment because this force would be coupling to muons and change the um, wobble of the spin um, that's measured there. But I have to say, you know, those are just two examples in many. And the real answer is we don't fully know. I mean, of course, you need uh, lots more experimental data um, to give a signpost to know um, really what's going on. And if it turns out that you are right and there is an extra force, we've been comfortable with the existence of of four forces so far, electromagnetic force, which Michael Faraday was very familiar with. There's gravity, which, of course, Isaac Newton was very familiar with. And then more recently, we've had the the stronger and the weaker nuclear forces. This would add a whole new gamut to the game, wouldn't it? I mean, if there is a fifth force, that, that rewrites physics textbooks. 
Um, you'd have to rewrite them all, yes. Um, but what you'd want to see um, to be sure of this idea would be to actually produce the particle that carries this force. All, all particles that we, all, all forces we know of um, are supposed to be carried by particles. So, for example, um, the electric force is carried by photons, you know, particles of light. So you'd want to actually produce and watch this force carrying particle in order to be sure of it. And just finally, Ben, what does this actually mean for the average person in the street, though? I think if you're interested in the universe and the way it is as we see it, I'm hoping that this is going to um, inspire us all to learn more about uh, the the place in in which we live. It certainly inspired me. And of course, we're all very interested in the universe and how it works. Thanks very much to Ben Alanak. And now it is time for the mailbox where we answer the things that you've been sending in. And James has been in touch to ask us, why does the COVID lateral flow test require a rather unpleasant nasal or throat swab? Why won't spitting saliva into the buffered solution work in the test strips? I took one earlier to come here and it wasn't fun. It felt like I was tickling my thoughts. Chris, why is that? Yeah, people have uh, likened having these nose and throat swabs to having a brain biopsy. The answer is reproducibility. Saliva is, in certain cases, a very good measure and marker of infection. If you have something that grows in your nose, in your throat, where saliva washes around, you can use saliva to get the genetic information and sometimes the organism itself or its antigens, the things it makes when it grows, and test for them. But it's difficult and inconsistent. And when people have done studies on coronaviruses, they found that because of the other stuff which can be present in saliva and because people are all different, the areas that they get the saliva from, the volume of saliva they produce and so on, it makes it very hard to produce a test which is consistent and reliable. Whereas a throat swab and a nose swab combined do tend to produce a more reliable, consistent sample, which is therefore easier to test. So at the moment, it's down to practicality and reliability. But watch this space, because in the long term, we all know spitting into a tube is a lot more attractive than doing a brain biopsy. Thanks very much, Chris. And if you've got a question of your own, feel free to get in touch at chris at thenakedscientists.com. And if you're into your science podcasts, why not give our Naked Astronomy strand a listen? The latest episode marks the milestone of 60 years since humans ventured into space. It's a listen that's out of this world. Go to thenakedscientist.com slash astronomy for more. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for your audio and video productions. In this half of the programme, we are tuning into something very near and dear for us, radio. We're going to explore how radio works, how the signal gets from us to you, how radio got started, and are we the only intelligent beings using it? Sometimes you have to wonder, don't you? Well, to kick us off on our adventures in radio this week, Adam has set out to build one. Radio is everywhere, and in a pandemic, people are finding renewed comfort in the little wireless box. The equipment is simple and easy to get a hold of, and you can indulge in the radio while doing a myriad of other things. Radio waves which carry the signal are electromagnetic waves, just like light or x-rays, 
only they're a lot longer. Where light has a wavelength in the billionths of a metre long, radio waves can be kilometres long. Given the ease you can get a hold of a radio, I thought it should be relatively straightforward to put one together myself. But... Oh, this is so many turns. So much copper. This is taking so oh, just long. So, just stay, stay. Mm. Copper gets hot when you heat it, Murphy. So I decided to get some help from Dave Ansel. The first bit of the instructions were to wrap a load of copper wire around a tube. So what's that all about? So it's doing two things. Um, the first one is it's acting as an aerial. Radio waves are electromagnetic waves, which means they produce little electric and magnetic vibrations in space. And so they produce little magnetic fields. And if you have a, ma- a magnetic field through a coil, it will cause a voltage to be produced on that coil. If an electromagnetic wave goes past your coil, it will cause a, a varying voltage on the coil. Any EM wave going past my coil then can induce a little bit of current in it which, through a circuit, you can get a signal, which is a radio. But why so many turns? Why so many coils? The, um, there's all sorts of radio waves going past your coil at the same time, but you only want to listen to one of them. And that's one at a certain frequency, a certain pitch, effectively. And so you want to build a circuit which will is really sensitive to that pitch, but not sensitive to any other. So the way you do that is you build a resonant circuit. So a bit like uh, if you push a swing, it wants to swing at a certain frequency. The circuit will want to um, have currents going through it at a certain frequency. And you do that with a coil, which behaves a bit like the inertia of the swing, a bit like your mass on the end of the swing. And a capacitor, which is a bit like a spring. So with the right combination of capacitors, along with my coil, I can tune into a specific frequency, a specific station. I've got a little tunable capacitor on this, which has a knob that you can turn to change the capacitance and then change the exact frequency or station that you're tuning into. But that's not the end. My little circuit had a lot of other components, but the other key one is called a rectifier, and that has an important job of its own. So the radio waves you're picking up are at a much, much higher frequency than the frequencies we use in speech. So if you, you could feed those into a loudspeaker, but you wouldn't hear anything because they're at millions of cycles per second, whereas we hear in thousands of cycles per second. So one of the things the rectifier does is take in a signal that's too high in frequency, too high in pitch for you to be able to hear, and essentially averages it out by just looking at the changes in the amplitude or the loudness, which is in a frequency you can hear. But it's not done yet. But if you put that into a loudspeaker, you can't hear anything because it averages out to zero. So to detect it, you've got to cut away the bottom half of the wave. So you put it through effectively a diode, so you only see the top half of the wave. And then when that's averaged out by the loudspeaker, it will turn into a sound wave at a frequency we can hear. Science demo maestro Dave Ansel. More from him at his website, scienceal.co.uk. And do stay tuned because we'll hear later on how Adam and Dave's homemade radio panned out. Will it work or won't it? Anyway, that's how easy or or hard, we'll see, it is to build a radio. But how did inventors actually stumble on this concept in the first place? How did radio come to be what it is? How do we go from our boring, silent kitchens and living rooms to ones full of noise? It's a long story, but a good one. And Richard Noakes from the University of Exeter took me through it, starting with Scottish physicist James Clerk Maxwell in 1864. The most important aspect of this is Maxwell's proposal that light is a form of vibration 
involving electricity and magnetism and their interaction. The paper that Maxwell published showed that measurements of electrical and magnetic phenomena produce the right result or a very good result to the speed of light, to the known speed of light. And so this gave good evidence, not conclusive evidence, that light was actually a form of electromagnetic vibration. But the thing about Maxwell's work is it's tricky. Students spend years studying Maxwell's equations and then lie about understanding them. So a lot of other bright sparks put time into expanding Maxwell's work. And one of them was British physicist Oliver Lodge. And he's really interested in the possibility that Maxwell's claim that that light is an electromagnetic vibration, maybe light can be generated experimentally. And what he does is to produce mini versions of lightning flashes in the laboratory using effectively the ancestor of today's capacitors. They're called Leiden jars. His work on this effectively leads him to show that the rapid oscillations of a Leiden jar that's sparking produces kind of waves that flow along wires. But independently of Lodge is a German physicist called Heinrich Hertz. And what he finds is something very similar to, to, to what Lodge would find in 1887, which is that there's a kind of wave-like phenomenon between wires connected to Leiden jars. But more interestingly, he's able to find waves flowing outside the wires in free space. But Lodge and Hertz weren't really interested in the applications of this. They were interested in the pure science of it all. So they didn't really bother pushing the engineering quite so much. However, Lodge was about to provide some much needed inspiration. And it's in 1894 that we see him broaching this topic again. And he does it interestingly in a lecture to uh, memorialise the death of Heinrich Hertz. So Heinrich Hertz died in 1894. Lodge is asked to present a series of lectures on Hertz's work. And in these lectures, he produces a demonstration of kind of wireless, effectively, telegraphy, but on a very small scale. What he does is effectively bring together the kit that he and others have produced to generate electrical waves. And some of the kit that's very well known in conventional wired cable telegraphy. So the kind of Morse key. And what he shows his audience, who are stunned by this, is that you can send through a a lecture theatre coded messages. One of the people very interested in this and in that lecture was Italian-Irish physicist Guglielmo Marconi, who had the creativity and the cash to really push the boat out. And what Marconi does is effectively to synthesise much of what he reads and uses it to develop apparatus that he thinks will make wireless stronger and sufficiently stronger for use in in forms of signalling and communication. So the very thing that Lodge thought was not going to work out practically. And so from about the mid-1890s, through to the early 1900s, Marconi develops this wireless telegraphic system. In 1901, he stages his grandest experiment, which is between the west coast of Ireland and the east coast of North America in Canada. So in 1901, what he does is effectively uh, to demonstrate 
that you can send wireless signals across the Atlantic. He sends one letter, the letter S, in Morse coded form, and it causes a sensation. Thanks very much to Richard Noakes. So, Adam, that must be then why they call it wireless. I had always wondered why we talk about the wireless. I mean, it's an old-fashioned term now, but that's the reason, because previously everyone had been sending Morse code through bits of wire. Yeah, you had the wired telegraph, and then suddenly you had a wireless thing that could do the same thing. I mean, can you imagine sitting in that lecture theatre when he did that demo back, back then? People would have been aghast. They would have been gobsmacked to see a signal just go through empty air. Yeah, through through basically nothing, or the ether they, they thought about at the time. But that's all. It would have been wild to see that. And also, I, I mean, I can't resist asking you, because of your ancestry, it, the clue is in your voice. <laughs> I didn't know Marconi had any kind of connection to Ireland. How did that come about? Yeah, his mother was Irish. She was one of the Jameson clan. That's where his, his cash came about to do this kind of thing. And then it was where he came across to do his signal. Pretty much every Irish university has something named after Marconi at this point. Brilliant. Thanks for filling me in. So far, we've heard how the concept was born, and later we'll hear how I got on building my own radio. But first, we're going to dip into another thriving part of the radio spectrum, and that's what's called amateur radio. Now, as we've heard, Marconi's transatlantic transmission was a massive hit. And it wasn't very long after he did that before radio was something that was very much de rigueur and soldiers were building them in the trenches of World War I battlefields with just a pencil and a razor blade. But as costs came down, a hobbyist scene of skilled people also got on board and embraced radio and took to the airwaves and they were using it to communicate all around the world and it's still very much a thriving initiative today. One of the people who does this is Mike Zero Delta Charlie Victor, more commonly known as Peter Howell and he's going to explain to us the next key part of the story which is actually how radio signals are produced in the first place and information like speech, us talking, is added to them. Before we answer that critical question, though, Peter, how did you end up becoming a radio amateur? Oh, it goes back about 25 years when my elder son came home from school and said he wanted a counterbalance to schoolwork. And uh, I'd always been interested in radio. I had a friend who was in Cambridge District Amateur Radio Club. So we joined, did the courses, took our exams, got our call signs. And the rest, as they say, is history. But that club can trace its origins back a very long way, can't it? I mean, I, I mentioned World War I there, and the Cambridge Club it is about 100 years old. Uh, yes, indeed. We've got uh, documents taking us back to around about 1919, 1920. So we're one of the oldest in the country. I bet your gear's a bit better than theirs, though. Uh, yeah, it's, it's improved a bit since <laughs> the old Spark transmitter days. Well, who have you spoken to? And do you literally do this in your back bedroom? Is this the sort of hobby that it is? I have a shack in, a, in an outbuilding. It's always called shacks. You speak to people all over the world. And I guess the ones that are most memorable, as the first one I ever contacted once I got my license was a guy in Devon. And the other, there's two others that stand out. One uh, was around a Christmas time with a guy in Finland who was snowed in for three weeks uh, he's a farmer in the summer and a forester in the winter. And when he's snowed in, he just goes on the radio and had a, had a very long chat. 
And the second one I remember was talking to a guy in Florida who had a HF radio in his truck and he just arrived at work in the morning, had sort of five minutes to spare and had a chat with him while he was sitting in the car park at his place of work in Florida. But that's sort of kind of typical, I guess. You mentioned that you had to do various exams and certifications in order to be able to do this. What's involved? There's three levels of license, if you like. The first one is the foundation license, and that allows you to transmit with about 10 watts of RF power. And that's enough to get you all over Europe, into Russia, and when the propagation is good, into North America, and when the propagation is really good, worldwide. The next stage is the intermediate license, and that gives you access to 50 watts of RF power and a few more frequencies. And with an intermediate license, you can then build your own equipment as well. And then the top level one is the full license, and you can transmit with up to 400 watts, build your own equipment and use all the amateur frequencies. Can you talk to the space station? Because I'm sure I've spoken to someone before who said that mm-hmm. they had booked a time and they were having a chat with people on the International Space Station. Uh, Yes, indeed. Some of the astronauts uh, have uh, a radio license and in the two metre band, if you you can book a slot and uh, talk to them as they come over. And it's it's a very popular demonstration in schools. I've not done it personally, but uh, I know people who have. You mentioned the propagation. You said when the propagation is good. What did you mean by that? Um, It's linked to the sunspot cycle, which the 11 year cycle of activity on the sun. And we're just going into cycle 26, I think it is. And as the number of solar flares build up and the amount of ultraviolet light uh, that coming off the sun increases, um, the ionosphere, which is used to refract radio signals around the curvature of the Earth, becomes um, more active, more refractive. And um, you can get some amazing distances on on very minimum amounts of power. So you basically bounce your signal from your antenna on the Earth's surface up onto that notional layer of sort of charged particles out in space and then it reflects it and refracts it more accurately down to another space on the Earth's surface. Absolutely right. So it refracts off the ionosphere and then 70% of the Earth's surface is covered with water, which is a good reflector, bounces off the ocean back up to the ionosphere and in three or four hops, that's how you get round to Australia. Goodness me. Now, let's let's sort of bite the bullet now then, because you have to answer the crucial question, because so far we've learned about you know, making radio waves. We've learned how they did it back in the early days and, and set people's you know, eyes popping out of their heads with those demos, which would have been almost like magic, I would think, to the audiences in those in those lecture theatres when when Lodge and his colleagues were doing this. But when we want to apply voice to radio, like like we're talking now, how is that done? Because how do you take just a signal, an electrical signal, and actually make it so that you can apply information to it that can be received? I suppose the easiest way is by CW or carrier wave, where you, you turn your transmitter on and off to generate the CW characters, just like sending Morse with a lamp, which is what it is. Second way is by means of amplitude modulation, where you blend your voice or you impose your voice pattern onto the radio frequency carrier wave and it varies the height or the amplitude of that wave in sympathy with the audio pattern of your voice. So the envelope, it gives you an analogue, the varying envelope gives you an analogue 
of your audio signal. And a third way of doing it is by frequency modulation. And here you keep the, the amplitude constant, but you vary the frequency as an analog of your voice signal. It's a bit like the bellows on an accordion. As the accordion plays, they stretch and contract. So the frequency increases and decreases in sympathy with your voice. So you sort of wobble the frequency and then you can demodulate it at the far end in your receiver. Peter, you have convinced me and quite possibly a lot of other geeky techie people like me out there to return to their desire to become a radio amateur, which was one of my childhood desires. So perhaps you and me are going to have to get together at some point in the near future. I look forward to it. (laughs) Thank you ever so much. Peter Howell, who's a radio amateur based in Cambridge. And it is actually Radio Amateur Day this week. So for people like Peter, we're celebrating their efforts. Now, of course, it isn't just other humans that we are looking to communicate with, because radio provides us with some very interesting ways to potentially chat with aliens as well. But how would we go about broadcasting to E.T.? And how would we know if E.T. had decided to phone home or even phone us? Well, Michael Garrett is the director of Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics, and hopefully he's going to tell us. So why do you think, uh, Michael, that radio is a good way to tune into E.T.? Well, the the nice thing about radio, and in fact, one of your speakers just mentioned it, is that you you only have to generate um, very low power waves to be able to communicate, you know, across the globe. So if you prepare to actually put a bit more power in your transmitter and and you hook it up to, you know, a large antenna like the the Jodrell Bank Telescope, then you can actually begin to send these signals not just around the world, but you can actually send them through space and indeed over a sort of large fraction of the of the galaxy it, it doesn't cost very much which is which is, as a scotsman that's always a good thing i wouldn't dare to say so michael but once you've made the signal <laughs> if it's in space already does that mean it's going to propagate indefinitely because there's nothing unless there's a star or some other entity in the way it's just going to go on forever until we pick it up Exactly, yeah. And, and radio is really good at that. As you go up to higher frequencies, um, even when you go into the, the near-infrared and the, and the optical, and even when you get to x-rays, then you get absorption by dust. So anything that's, that's in the path of the, of the electromagnetic signal will get absorbed. But radio, you know, radio will just go through everything. That's one of the reasons we use it sort of so prolifically here, you know, with Wi-Fi, for example, or mobile phones, is that radio waves can travel through windows, they can travel round corners, even go through sort of walls, etc. Is that what you're listening out for then? You're looking for radio waves originating from off-planet that might have some intelligence behind them? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that we are interested in doing. The nice thing about a signal that's produced by technology, so a radio signal, is that it's really easy to see the difference between that kind of signal and a, and a natural signal that's maybe being produced by a star or or a planet or, or a galaxy. Those, the, the technology usually produces very narrow band signals and you shift them in, in their amplitude or in their frequency or you modulate them or you pulse them in some way. So it's really easy to, to be able to distinguish those from all the natural um, radiation that, that you see. And, and that's what we're looking for. We're looking for those signatures of technology um, when we're looking at radio waves coming from space. Isn't an inherent problem with this 
the scale that we're talking about, when one considers how big the universe is, how big just our own neck of the cosmic woods is, you know, our own galaxy is 100,000 light years across, isn't it? So if there are aliens out there, then the signals that are travelling at the speed of light will have had to have been travelling to us for us to detect them for a really long time. So are they going to not be really, really very advanced, way more advanced than we are, for example, in order to have made those signals to give them time to get to us? They almost certainly are more advanced than we are. I mean, we've only been a sort of technical civilization for, say, the last 100 years, if you define that as being when we started to use radio waves back in the in the time of Marconi. So we've only been doing that for about 120 years. And, and yes, the scale is a problem. <laughs> the Milky Way is, is really, really big. Uh, and actually, by comparison, the speed of light is actually very, very slow. And then the other question is, you may have many, many technical civilizations, but if they're only around for you know, for maybe a few hundred years, or they're only using radio, for example, for a few hundred years, or even even if they're around for 10,000 years. Again, it's the scale that gets you because 10,000 years is like a tiny amount of time compared to the age of the, of the Milky Way. So you could have civilizations, many of them just coming and going, but they, they never overlap in, in time or in space. Indeed, you sort of sticking a pin in the in the bubble of is there life out there with, with these sorts of sentiments, aren't you? But as, as Jill Tarter from NASA once said to me, it, it's too cheap not to do this sort of project and go looking, isn't it? Have we actually ever picked up anything that might be aliens, though? I don't think so. There's been a few interesting signals recently, actually reported in, in December. There's a very interesting signal, but it looks as though that, that, that that's going to be sort of local radio frequency interference now that the data have been properly analysed. So I don't think we've really had a, a good example of a signal. But as you say, you know, we can do all sorts of sort of normal astronomy. And in parallel to the astronomy, we can siphon off the signals and we can be looking also, you know, for, for that technological signature that we think we would find with a, a radio wave that's produced by technology. So we can we can do all our standard astronomy, but at the same time, we can siphon off the data and think about this question, because for me, I don't think there's a more important question out there than are we alone? Are there other intelligent civilizations out there like us? So I think it's it's really a cheap way of answering a really important question. And what constitutes to you intelligent life or evidence of intelligent life? Are we are we sort of looking for the alien equivalent of the Naked Scientist radio program? Is that what you're looking for? <laughs> well, it could be that, yeah. It, but it could be all sorts of things. For example, it could be radar systems that that perhaps other civilizations are using for their for their aircraft or for tracking missiles. So it doesn't have to be sort of radio shows per se. We're using radio for all sorts of different types of things. We use them in our mobile systems. We use them in Wi-Fi. You know, we're completely surrounded here by radio waves. And, and those radio waves are actually moving off planet. We have the Starlink system that's going to provide Wi-Fi from orbit. We have spacecraft that are moving out into the, the solar system and beyond the solar system. So sort of that radio halo and all that radioactivity, we might expect to find that with another um, technical civilization. We certainly want to look for that. If you were pushed to give an answer to this next question, how likely do you think it is in the next 50 years that we're going to find evidence of alien communications? 
Yeah, I think I think we've never been in a better position to do it. We're now doing systematic surveys with the best possible equipment, and that's been funded through the Breakthrough Listen program that Yuri Milner and, and Julia Milner have been been funding. So we're really doing proper surveys now. I don't know about fifty years, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if something turns up in the in the next ten years. And I think it's definitely worth a, a couple of quid for a Scotsman. That's really saying something, isn't it? <laughs> Michael? Thank you very much indeed. That's Michael Garrett, who's the director of Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics. And uh, I suppose I should also say thanks very much to our other guests this week: Dave Ansell, Richard Noakes, and Peter Howell. Adam, moment of truth: How have you got on with building your radio? Mm, something of a mixed bag, I'm afraid. I have a thing in front of me, and it definitely is an AM receiver. It, it can pick up signals, and it gets unhappy when I put it near electrical things. But Can it detect aliens? No, it can't detect aliens, and it can't even detect other radio stations. I don't think I think I have enough <laughs> coils, or too few coils, or not enough things, or whatever. That doesn't sound like a success story, Adam. It, it, it is an AM receiver. It's just not one that can pick up radio stations, but it is receiving. You have some homework to do for next time. Definitely I do. And lastly, to question of the week, where Phil Sansom has been looking into the details of Mejnoon's electric question. During science lessons, my teacher told me that when an electron excites, it jumps to another orbital around the nucleus. Remember, electrons are tiny particles, and they move in patterns called orbitals. When an electron jumps an orbital, you would expect that it can be found between the two orbitals, but my teacher told me that this is never the case. I cannot wrap my head around this. Does the particle just disappear in one orbital and pop up in the next one? And if so, is this instant? And is the particle in the other orbital still the same particle? Can you please help me understand this? Meshnoon, don't worry. You came to the right place. Here's physicist Ankita Anirban. Hi, Meshnoon. She's here to answer what happens when an electron jumps to a new orbital. From what you've said, it seems to me like you're imagining orbitals as concentric rings around the nucleus. It's probably the image you've been given in school. And this is a very useful model. But in fact, all models are actually just approximations. And sometimes they break down. And in this case, you found the fatal flaw of this particular model. As soon as you ask, is the electron sometimes between orbitals, which is a very fair question, there's actually no good answer. So we need to think about a different model. A more accurate way of understanding electrons is through a theory called quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics explains how particles like electrons work, and it uses probabilities to do so. So when we say an electron is in a certain orbital, it just means that it's quite likely to be in that general area. In quantum mechanics, when the electron gets some extra energy, it doesn't jump to an outer orbital, but as it revolves around the nucleus, its path is more likely to be further away from the centre. This might seem quite abstract to you, but according to quantum mechanics, an electron isn't actually a tiny billiard ball hopping between orbitals. A better way of thinking about it is more like a little fuzz of mass and energy that's very hard to pin down. Again though, this is still just a model, which also has its limitations. Here's another comparison from our forum. Chiral SPO says to think of the electron as a wasp, It can be calm or it can be angry. There is nothing in between and it can instantly go from one to the other or back. Again, just a metaphor for something extremely complicated. And even though I'm a physicist who deals with electrons daily, trying to actually imagine an electron is very difficult for me. And to be honest, it's also sent me down a philosophical rabbit hole.
Well, thanks to Ankita for diving in for us. Meanwhile, our next question comes from listener Ellie, who has been pointing and clicking and then wondering... How do zip files work on my computer? So, can anyone help unzip that one for Ellie? If you can help, come join the debate on our forum, thenakedscientist.com slash forum. Or if you'd like to ask us a question, we're at chris at thenakedscientist.com or use the web form at thenakedscientist.com slash question. And before we go, we have an exciting opportunity or two to tell you about here at The Naked Scientists. We are hiring and we're looking for producers and presenters to join the team. Find out how you can apply at nakedscientist.com forward slash job. Thanks to Adam who put the programme together this week and join us again next time to find out how to make your home greener as governments in some countries are now stipulating that new houses built after 2030 are not going to be allowed to connect to the household gas supply. We need to know how we can sympathetically and sustainably heat, decorate and furnish our homes. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University's Institute of Continuing Education and is supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>